and welcome to the Better Call Saul edition of MSV Podcast. This is a unique podcast as it is the only MSV podcast that does not include Greg Vorob. Uh, rather upon his insistence, he said, I don't want to be on this episode. And I said, okay, sure, no problem. So on the panel today, we have uh, Matt. Matt, do you prefer to be called Matt Marks or do you want to be called Matt? Say your name, I'm sorry. Marcinkowitz. Uh, Matt Marks is fine. It's easier on everybody. All right. So we have Matt Marks. Uh, we have Mark Seidenstein. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Hey, John. Great to be here. All right. You too. I mean, yeah. Uh, we have Lara Lieberstein. Hello, John Seymour. Hi, Lara Lieberstein. Lara Lieberstein is uh, my, my lovely uh, live-in girlfriend. And my brother, Dan Seymour. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Hello. How's it going? All right. How's everyone's nights going so far? So far, so good. All right, man. So far, so good. So today we're going to be talking about season six of Better Call Saul. Of course, we are going to lead up to season six. So I'm going to have a very broad overview of the first five seasons, and we'll all talk about it that way. So, getting right into it, from the first episode, there is a stark contrast between the post-breaking bad Saul which is the first thing we see in the entire series, funny enough, and the season one Saul, which we see immediately after that. And to run through this very quickly, Saul has his office in the back room of some nail salon. And despite paying rent, they give him shit for taking their cucumber water. Uh, so Saul tries to get a job as a partner in a law firm, but doesn't get hired, so he works as a public defender. And Saul finds out that his brother Chuck has intentionally sabotaged his efforts to climb the lawyer ladder, that impending, and so begins their feud. Saul then intentionally sabotages a high-profile deal that Chuck was about to make, and Chuck manages to trick Saul into confessing what he did into a running tape recorder that was hidden under a blanket. I was going to talk about some of the parallels mm -hmm. in the relationship between Jimmy and Chuck and John and me. Mm -hmm. um, probably not quite as extreme as Jimmy and Chuck, but um, I think most brothers could probably relate to some of the tensions that Team and Chuck go through in those early seasons. I think I agree with that. I don't think you're um, ever going to do what Chuck did or I'm ever going to do what Saul did, but. But we might want to. <laughs> yes. Well, moving on. I, I looked at that dynamic as sort of not completely typical sibling relationship, but I mean, my relationship with my sister has its similarities where, you know, you put the work in. And somebody always gets a break and you're like, God damn it. Like I'm, I'm actually working for this, you know, and, and people just get breaks. And it's like that, that's the way the world works. It works and it hurts that the, the payoff always comes to somebody who, who might not be expecting it or, or so dedicated to achieving it themselves. Am I, am I accurate in assuming that your sister is younger than you? She is. Okay. Yeah. That the, the, the way that you just said that, I was like, yeah, that's an older brother talking about his younger sister there. Oh, yeah. I, I would have been surprised if she was older. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I definitely get the uh, brother rival rivalry uh, dynamic. Uh, my brother is older and I guess my brother would be the Saul and I would be the Chuck. He's more of the screw up of the family and I'm more of the straight laced, you know, by the books kind of person. So. Yeah, I get it. And he, he's always trying to take shortcuts, just similar to Saul and kind of go, you know, 
not such legal ways of doing things, <laughs> you can say. <laughs> and you try to you try to stay on the uh, on the up and up as as it were. Yeah, I would say so. I I read an interview on some internet with the uh, with the writers the creators say, and apparently the original idea, at least in season one, was that it was going to be Chuck and um, and uh, and Jimmy. Uh, uh, together on the same side with Hamlin being with Howard Hamlin being this big antagonist and the two of them commiserating and and Chuck being the sort of impotent uh commiserator and wow. then as yeah and then as it went on as they watched season one they saw this edge in 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 uh, with Charles McKeon's uh uh portrayal of Chuck and they're like no we got it all wrong right and uh and in reality, I mean, they, they really nailed a, a sibling dynamic much better than, oh, I know, Howard's so bad. Oh, too bad. So pretty impressive. It's interesting you say that. One of the things I, I hope to touch on in the final season is Howard Hamlin as the villain who we don't really, or I didn't really hate that much. I didn't want to see him do badly. And it's interesting that you say that because it, that, it was really set up, set up to be that way. That kind of makes sense because he never really sets up as the villain throughout the season right he's only kind of like a jackass sometimes but he's not really like a bad guy no i get it all right well anyway so we can just breeze through the rest of these uh, seasons long story short chuck's plan from the start was for saul to find out that he had recorded him confessing so that he would violently break into chuck's house and destroy the evidence with planted witnesses and Chuck is never convinced that Saul is on the level, and so he's trying to get him disbarred. On the day of his trial, Saul manages to convince the jury that, <clears throat> that Chuck has a screw loose and that most of the evidence presented is circumstantial. And so instead of being disbarred, Saul is given a very minimal slap on the wrist, as it were, with a one-year suspension from law practice. And naturally, this infuriates Chuck. Meanwhile, Saul pays a visit to the insurance office and accidentally, on purpose, lets it slip that Chuck is unstable, which results in his insurance cost being raised substantially. He is brought out from the law firm, excuse me, he's bought out from the law firm, and his partners no longer want to work with him. Overwhelmed, Chuck sets his house on fire, on fire with him still inside of it, effectively ending the Saul-Chuck feud. Now, I know that this is a... Uh, that's a really quick breeze through of the season. Are there any parts that you wanted to, to talk about from the season? You know, the, the way this all play, plays out, you have to credit the writers because as it goes through, you know, even right until the end, every time you think you pick up on something or you, you think you made a prediction that's going to come true, mm -hmm. you didn't. No. And as much as you'd like it, you know, I, I wish that once my predictions were true, just so I could say I was on the same level, but there's, that's not satisfying because they, they will continue to one up you. So when, when you see, you know, the, the lighting and everything and the, and the way that the Chuck is kicking the lantern off the table and absolutely nobody saw it coming. And that's in the last, what, six seconds of the season, mm -hmm. just, my jaw was on the floor. You're just like, what the fuck is going on here i have to give credit to dan though dan you i remember you and i were in uh i think it was stateline diner in mawa and we were talking about 
uh, it was probably like the middle of the third season that hadn't happened yet. And you were like, Chuck is definitely not going to make it. Of course he's not. And I said, really? And you were so sure of it. And then he didn't make it. He killed himself. One, one thing that I think is funny about the character Saul Goodman is that um, like all his most poignant moments in life take place during hearings, which I mean, when we get to the finale, it's like, and then this is the first one, right? His showdown with Chuck at the hearing. And it's like, like his life highlights are primarily a series of like appeals and, and hearings. So what I forgot to mention at the beginning of uh, the episode <clears throat> is that Better Call Saul sort of has three stories to it. The first story is the Saul and Chuck story, which appropriately ends right in the middle of the series. And then it is the how did he become Saul story. And then it's the post Breaking Bad story. So we just finished the Chuck story. We talked about it. And perhaps if this was a uh, more focused on Saul and Chuck, there would be more to say. But we're just going to move right on because I can't even blame you for not having that much to say about it. So season four sees the beginning of the construction on the underground meth lab. And the hired guns were not allowed to, uh, to know where they were. However, the, the team leader, Werner Ziegler, who remembers that guy, Werner Ziegler, the German guy. He was so desperate to see his wife after months and months of loneliness and kind of, I guess, not knowing where he was, that he, uh, he managed to break out of the lab, resulting in his knowledge of the location and for forcing Mike Armantrout, Armantrout, whatever, to kill him. And of course, it was, uh, it was such a sad scene because the guy's good. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. And he goes, Michael, is there really no other way, truly? And Mike was like, no, you know where you are. Whenever I will say Werner Ziegler, I have to say it like Lalo now. That's that's the last time I think it was mentioned <laughs> on the show. And just that stupid little accent, like when he's trying to figure it all out, Werner Ziegler. Ziegler. Nice. Nice. That's, the, that's the way to say it, I think, moving forward. Uh, this was my least favorite season of the series. And usually when a show goes from good seasons to bad seasons, they don't come back. So it's, uh, among the many remarkable things about the final season is that to, to come back from this season, which I was really not a fan of, it was pretty remarkable. I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. I was less than impressed by this season. Uh, and that's why all of what I'm saying about season four, I mean, more or less, like all the interesting stuff happens away from Saul. So I'm glad that they were doing the uh, the underground meth lab thing and the Germans and, and all that. But yeah, I, I wasn't crazy about the season. I mean, it's essential to the, um, you know, if it's a prequel of Breaking Bad, it's essential to know how the meth lab was built. Um, but yeah, I agree. It wasn't, I actually really like, you know, the seasons that had Chuck in them. After after Chuck died, it, it it seemed more like it was they were just trying. It was just like more of like a Breaking Bad part two, and it actually had me confused. Like, wait, what happened in Breaking Bad? What happened in this? And then I liked this new season, which we'll get to how it came back to like more of Saul's story again. How be he becomes Saul Goodman and transitions right. from uh, Jimmy McGill. But yeah, okay. Now, at the end of season four, we're getting to the end of the worst season of the series. Saul fakes emotion about his brother's death in order to get reinstated. That is, to be a lawyer. 
It works, and he and his girlfriend Kim have a brief moment of jubilation until it comes to Kim's attention that Saul faked his sadness to get what he wanted. Jamie McGill has now made a full transformation to Saul Goodman, not dissimilar to Walter White's full transformation to Heisenberg. This, I thought, was a really cool way to end season four because it was like, you know, he wasn't Saul Goodman when Chuck was around. But then after Chuck was out of the way, there was a lot less getting in his way. And that's why I feel like Saul Goodman was, I mean, you know, I, I feel like they probably did this intentionally to a lesser extent, like, you know, Walter White and Heisenberg, Jimmy McGill and Saul Goodman. I, I think you're on par with that because Chuck being around, he didn't, he didn't need to see that to have any less respect for, for Jimmy, uh, you know, slipping Jimmy as it were. I mean, he's seen it. He had seen it for so long that, that, that would have just, it probably would have severed their entire relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the complete annihilation of the legitimacy of the law practice that that's the way that Chuck saw it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you there. Saul and Chuck saw law practice as almost two completely different art forms. And it was, uh, it was glorious to watch the, uh, the choreograph, <laughs> the, the, the choreographed uh, scenes in the first three seasons, which of course were no longer available. And I think that in season four, they were just trying to fill up some space before he became Saul Goodman. Like the overarching theme of both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is the ambiguity of, of characters who break one way and another mm -hmm. and the character traits that drive them in one direction or another. And I've yes, it's, it's definitely noticeable that for Jimmy becoming Saul, the trauma of Chuck's suicide is what, what drives him not initially in that direction, but, but full throttle in that direction. So yeah, I think that's like, an, I agree, a great way to end season four. Yeah, well, I, I I agree that definitely Jimmy was holding Jimmy. Um, Chuck was holding Jimmy back from becoming Saul Goodman. I I, I believe that Jimmy was always meant to be Saul Goodman. At, um, what was holding him, as, him back was he was he spent his entire life trying to seek Chuck's approval, um, and then you know once he was gone, then he started transitioning into into Saul Goodman and. And, and when we talk about the newest new season, when you know when he's with Kim, he still can't fully be Saul Goodman because he's trying to also to, you know to seek her approval. And then once she leaves, then he goes full on Saul Goodman, and that's it. And there's that. And so what I thought was kind of interesting was that at the end of season four, Kim actually thought that he was being genuine about his emotions about uh, Chuck's death. And she thought that he finally got it. And then when he was like, oh, I can't believe they fell for it. That was such a good act. And she was kind of caught off guard. And the reason that I find that interesting is because in the next season, like her being caught off guard is not even, it's not even addressed. She's just like, okay, whatever. All right, can I ask a question? Sure. Um, just like with, with Heisenberg, there's, some ambiguity about whether that's always been inside him and manifests at certain times when facing certain circumstances. Do you think that there's some ambiguity about whether he was really just Saul 
all along and Chuck was holding back or that I, his I was actually Chuck not to interrupt sorry I was actually yeah. going to say that but I, I I said I believe I I was going to say that I believe that he was always Saul all along just like um Walter was always Heisenberg but it, it's you know other people in his life holding him back because he felt like he couldn't be his if you can call it his true self I'm going to say no that that um, Jimmy was not always Saul in some way because in the beginning, in like, I think it's the second episode of the first season of Better Call Saul, he, uh, he, he like, you know, does some, some slick talking to save those two skater dudes' lives who like, and they were about to let him die. They were just like, oh, it was, it's, it's all his fault. It was his idea, kill him. And he still tried to tried to save their lives because it was like you're not just going to let someone die. But then by the end of Breaking Bad, he suggests to Walter that he kill Hank, and he's just saying like, "Whatever, it's worked for you in the past. You should do it again." And then Walter got annoyed about that. Um, so no, I don't think that he was always Saul. I think that events uh, drove him. To that side of himself yeah um, i guess my point is specifically his resentment and jealousy of chuck helped to drive him to become saul not just that chuck was holding him back but that his feud with chuck helped to create something it could be it could be um i wonder if they had that kind of feuding before the series started or if it was just sort of like you know chuck didn't respect saul and one day he decided he was going to try to stop him from being a lawyer. And then things started elevating. And we saw the beginning of that in season one of Better Call Saul. There, I think there are some flashback scenes to their childhood that suggest that this was embedded in their relationship from when they mm -hmm. were children. That Chuck, as the older brother, was right. overly controlling. And All right. So moving on to season five. And we are almost on the main topic of our... Uh, of our podcast here. Season five, Jimmy is practicing under the name of Saul Goodman. Kim does some underhanded stuff with Saul's help, which pisses off a lot of people in high places. So she quits her partnership and focuses on her own business. She and Saul have conversations that can be incriminating to each other. So in order to circumvent any of that, they get married. So they won't be required to testify in <clears throat> against each other, excuse me, if it ever came down to it. I don't think there's a whole lot to say about this. They got married, and that's just so that they wouldn't testify. Lalo, who I actually have not mentioned, but he was a great character. Lalo is arrested and given a $7 million bail, which leads to one of my favorite episodes, The Adventures of Mike and Saul in the Desert. And the reason that it's one of my favorite episodes is because it's so stupid. They would have both just died in the desert. There's no way they would have survived that many days with no water, no anything like that. Eh, maybe they would have, but they wouldn't have been conscious. So Jimmy goes to pick up the $7 million from a bunch of desert toughs who try to steal it from him. But Mike intervenes and shoots all of them to death, except for one who he misses, resulting in Saul's car getting destroyed, leaving them to trek the desert. And because there is still one person out there, they can't walk the main road. Long story short, 
they make it out with the $7 million minus a few hundred because one of the bags broke when Saul tried to tie them together, despite Mike saying, that's not going to work. He insisted, it's going to work, it's going to work. But guess what? Of course, it didn't work. After all is said and done, Lalo goes back to his home in Mexico. Gus instructs Nacho on how to carry out Lalo's murder. Let the assassins into his house, is basically what he said. However, Lalo is slick and single-handedly kills all of his would-be assassins, except for one who he instructs to tell Gus that he had succeeded in killing Lalo. And here we have an extended COVID break. So, what do you think about this? It started getting really interesting, right? Right before like the, like the two or three year break between season five and six. It really did. And that's, that's what I think the end of that season threw us for a loop because you're for the entire series, you're, you're thinking consciously that, well, who's in Breaking Bad and who's not? And who's not going to be around and how do they do it? And you think you know everything. And the way Lalo hops on that car in the desert like a fucking Terminator, <laughs> the way he lands on that, you know? And yeah. you think, okay, there's no possible way that he survives and makes it out of that house. And he limps his ass to his gate and, and decides, well, here we go, you know, round two. Sure. And you just, you don't, you don't see that. And you're like, God damn it. You know, like, I, I didn't I certainly didn't expect it and it I think it made for a much big bigger and better payoff overall. I agree. Man, that was a wacky season. Dan? Uh some hit squad that they <laughs> can't take out one guy with the element of surprise. I think Gus should hire better hit. Yeah, I agree with you. But then again, Lalo was good. Lalo was like an amazing psychopath. Oh yeah. Like, that's what it takes to, to beat a hit squad like that. You have to have zero hesitation and zero compunction. And, and that's, that's Lala, man. Lara? Yeah, I agree. I mean, Lala is one of the best characters, I think. Uh, plays, that, plays a psychopath villain great because he just seems like a cool, calm, collected, normal dude. Um, <laughs> and he's an insane killer. Uh, no, he's a great character. I, I enjoyed his story. And especially the showdown between him and Gus was, was epic. Ooh, well. And real quick about that, too, the, the one little throwaway line that you think is a throwaway line anyway, yeah. when, when you, we'll get to it later, obviously, but when Gus and Lalo are in the laundry and he, he finally he flips the machine and he goes in his creepy little way, he goes, I had a bathtub that did that. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you we think along similar lines there. That's not that's like this, of there. course. It's great. Not like this, but that was great. <laughs> All right. Well, now on to the main topic of the episode. We spent a good amount of time. What was that? Like a half hour talking about seasons one through five, which I feel got their due attention. And uh, now on to season six, so we're going to be a little bit more specific with everything now. Just a little bit of warning, all right? So, season six begins. There is no black and white flash forward until the end of the season, which is different from how they've done it in every other season. They have like a little bit of a little bit of Saul's life, and what? Where is he? Nebraska. 
Mm-hmm. Anyone? Yeah. Okay. He's in Nebraska. I'm getting all the nods. Nods are good. Yes. So, so picking up where we left off right before COVID, the cartel finds out that Nacho was involved in the assassination attempt, but Mike helps him hide. The creepy Salamanca twins are now in hot pursuit of Nacho for killing Lalo, who isn't really dead, but they think he is. That, by the way, before I move on, was a really interesting kind of like aspect of this final season, is that until Lalo showed himself toward the end, most people thought he was dead, but no one knew for sure. And I thought that was kind of cool. But at this point, Nacho realizes that he will never live through the whole fiasco. So he arranges for his father to be protected and allows himself to be captured. Of course, since Gus was the one who hired Nacho to set the assassination in motion, it had to be faked. So he, quote, confesses that the Colombians paid him to murder Lalo. Then he grabs the gun away from that bald guy who doesn't look like he'd be intimidating, but I guess he is. And then he shoots himself in the head Sadly, ending the Nacho story. What did you think when you first saw Nacho shooting himself in the head? Well, right before it got to that, I thought that his his little soliloquy to, to Don Hector, he's, when he said, you think of me, I thought that's right on par with I'm mm-hmm. the one who knocks. Like, you, mm-hmm. you will not forget that. But um, another thing, you know, you would never have suspected that that angle. And he, he saved himself in doing that. He saved his father. And they all got it. Even, even Michael almost shed a tear up on the hill. He was ready to, ready to take him out and have it, have it be painless. And, uh, and he, he did it his own way. Yeah. Props to him. I think the original plan was that he would try to run away and, and Gus's people would shoot him, right? And so yeah. he said, I'm not down with that plan. I'm going to do it my own way, do it myself. Right. Yeah, I was actually I was actually surprised. Um, I actually gasped when he shot himself. I didn't know that. I guess I was a little I was confused on the plan. I actually thought that he was they he wasn't gonna die that day somehow. So, but I definitely didn't think he was gonna shoot himself. But take some balls to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think he was gonna shoot himself. I didn't think he was gonna die, just like all you guys are saying. Because the thing is, like, uh, that was Don Hector, the bald guy, right? Yeah. The bald, bald guy Bol- was one Bolsa. 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 Hector Bolsa. So anyway, wait a minute. No, no, no. Hector, Hector's the guy in the wheelchair. Right. Who is Hector Salamanca. Right. No, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the guy who, who Nacho stole the gun from. Don Bolsa. Don Bolsa. Bolsa, yes, that was Bolsa. Don Bolsa, yeah. Don Bolsa, right? Don Bolsa. So he was giving this, he was giving this whole speech about how, like, hey, some some deaths are good deaths and some deaths are bad deaths. But if you tell me what I need to know, I'll make sure that your death is good. I'm sorry, I can't do the accent. So I thought, I thought that because he was giving this whole big speech before he kills him. I was like, that never leads to someone killing someone on TV. That's always like, you're, <laughs> you're well, it, it really doesn't, you know, because because it's just kind of like it, it seems to be um, whatever, like pushing 
it back and like, you know, okay, we're not doing it now. We're not doing it now. So we're going to give him more time to escape. So I thought, all right, Bulsa is going to get shot or, uh, you know, something's going to happen. And, you know, like Nacho is going to be able to escape. But yeah, I really did not see it coming that he was going to shoot himself in the head. And I even thought for, for a, a few brief minutes that it was like a fake suicide. But no, it was real. It was a real suicide. And that was... Uh, it was real and it was yeah. spectacular. It was spectacular. Did Mike yeah. help him? Did Mike help, help him do that? Do you think? Help him suicide? Yes, because he had, to, he had to cut through his bindings, right? Cut I think through. Mike might have helped him... Uh, effectuate his own alternative plan well, i mean was, mike he was ready to but he had yeah. that piece of broken glass in his hand so he he stabbed mm -hmm. one yes. also in the leg yeah and, and got the gun from him and i i think that whole like you said john that whole speech that that bolsa gives him it sort of rang a little austin powers ish for me like, yeah we're gonna, we're gonna put him in the desert with this one inept guard and like <laughs> he, he's gonna find a way somehow yep but we how, how he got the glass because he was being prepared by mike right the previous day the glass right? no the glass he found from when gus dropped it in the trailer when mm -hmm. gus started shaking and before they took him he looked in the garbage it took me i had to go back and rewatch it because uh they they zoom in on it there's a perspective from the garbage and you see sure. a bunch of a bunch of reflections of nacho there's like six of them and he he takes that glass that uh that gus dropped cool yeah, no, there's a, it definitely has rewatch value, I would say, the fifth and sixth seasons. Before that, eh, I don't know, I actually rewatched the first three seasons before the fourth one came out. And I was like, eh, there's not much rewatch value, but five and six, absolutely. So, <clears throat> moving back to Saul, his business is thriving. So he moves out of the back of the nail salon. I was, I was surprised that he was still there. I didn't think he was still in the back of the nail salon at this point. But he was. He moved out, and uh, he rents out his own place. Saul and Kim now want to con the fuck out of Howard Hamlin. Who loved this story? I love this story. So they want to make Howard settle some case from the beginning of the series early. They wanted to, you know, settle early so that Saul and Kim can walk away with a whole bunch of cash. Their plan basically consisted of making Howard look like a cokehead, doing things like planting powder in his locker, and even going so far as Saul dressing like Howard, stealing his car, and throwing a hooker onto the street in front of, uh, who's that tall guy with the glasses? Whatever his name is. Clifford Maine. The Clifford Maine? Yeah, so they did that in front of him. Uh... Immediately, of course, because Howard knows Saul. Howard knows that Saul is behind the plan, so he hires an investigator to trail him, but the PI is in on the con as well. Can you believe how perfect this all works out? I have a question, actually. Was there ever, uh, was there a payoff expected from the bowling balls that Jimmy uh -huh. was throwing on Howard's car? That wasn't really part of, it, it certainly wasn't a con. Well, like, <laughs> I think it started out as mischief and yeah. you know, the bowling balls were like innocent teenage mischief. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of took this big leap to like, let's not just annoy him. Let's fuck him. And I think that was sort of 
uh, a major moment when they, when the two of them, I think they were in that hotel together, uh, Kim and Kim and uh, Kim and Jimmy, and they were just like, you know, let let's do it for real now. Sure. And I, I think the bowling balls are sort of there to to, to contrast that. I, I have a question. Um, I guess it's a minor point, but I didn't understand why making Howard look like a cokehead would lead to a settlement in the Sandpiper case. Um. I don't think it did. I just think it made him, I think it made him less credible. No, it, it completely. Was, yeah. It, no, it, it, because if you recall, um, the, uh, right, it, it, it led to, so the, the thing with the, with the judge who was working as the mediator yeah. could have been explained as some, you know, he could, he could have grabbed evidence and, and then after the fact, explained how it was all just a con by Jimmy McGill, mm-hmm. which would have been plausible. But the fact that his credibility had been damaged, it was plausible at that moment uh, to what, what was the other lawyer's name? Um, to uh, to Buddy. Weikert or something? Yes, Weikert. yes, yes. Weikert, yeah, yeah. Rich yeah. Weikert. It was, it was plausible to him that, oh, yeah, this is the culmination of, uh, or, or this guy's clearly high. Yeah, I get that part, but so what? Your lawyer is high, so you'll settle a class action lawsuit when you so get a new lawyer. I mean, why would you settle? Why would you settle a case that you wouldn't have otherwise settled? Yeah, Dan's right. I hate to say it, but uh, I hate saying it. But Dan's kind of got a good point here. But uh, yeah, get a new lawyer. Yeah, get a new lawyer. Okay. So they find a picture of someone who will act as the sandpiper mediator with a very distinct looking handlebar mustache. And they hire a lookalike for a photo shoot in order to make it look like the actual mediator is in cahoots with Saul, the quote, investigator. The actor was played by John Ennis. Oh. Who's uh, from Mr. Show with with Bob Odenkirk, yeah. Oh, nice, okay, I didn't know that, that's cool. So the quote investigator shows these pictures to Howard who quote, recognizes him at the meeting and calls him out. Of course, the photos were swapped in the interim, and Howard is now showing the mediator pictures of Saul handing a picture, handing a frisbee to someone in the park. This makes Howard look crazy and results in a settlement. But I think that you guys have already kind of uh, talked about this part, so you know, listen to it backwards, and then it'll make more sense. <laughs> well, but no, but as you're watching. The, the scan that they're running, and I'm wondering, like, what are they doing? Like, they, they talked about wanting to settle the case, but I was like, what, what is all this going to lead to? Um, so I, I was a little bit confused, and I, I found it anticlimactic in that way when, when that was the outcome. So. I have to be honest. When I was watching, a lot of what happens, like, like the payoffs and, like, the descriptions and stuff, it's sort of like blink and you'll miss it. And I didn't really quite understand why they were trying to make Howard look like that. And I, it was only on the recap that I realized, okay, yeah, now it makes sense. They were trying to settle something early so that they could get money. And, uh, you know, this was from like first or second season. Uh, yeah. So now it all kind of comes together. I don't think they did a very good job of uh, making it all that obvious why it was happening. I mean, in the end, in the payoff, you're not supposed to know. It's not supposed to be obvious while it's still be while it's still brewing. But 
Well, they also they wanted to quote unquote stick it to him because Jimmy had been working on that case for years and Howard basically stole it from him. So, you know, yeah. it's kind of, I don't even, honestly, I don't even think it was about the money. Well, they said that they were going to get a lot of money. Yes, it was settlement. a little bit about yeah. the money, but uh, that's like a perk. But I think it was more about like, you know, getting, what is it? Like pushing Howard off his high horse. He, he's obnoxious. It is oh, namaste. Yes. Namaste. Car and like his uh, with you. perfectly perfect suits and his attitude. Thatcher. I think he's I hate him. <laughs> He's struggling to get by like everybody else. I'm, I'm a Howard Hamlin booster. He sleeps right. in the he's, best house, for God's well, sake. Well, I mean, and then you see his song. You know, I guess, you know, he's having marital problems and stuff. Mm. So we don't, we didn't know that. <laughs> he's actually nice to Jimmy. He offers him a job eventually, right? He didn't yeah. steal the sandpiper yeah. from him. They partnered on it. And Hamlin McGill wouldn't hire Jimmy McGill. That was really all it was. So. Mm. All right. Yeah. Well, the guy who played Howard, I, I found this interesting. He played a he played a criminal on Burn Notice, and it was basically the same character, but a criminal instead of a lawyer. So I mean, okay. I just figured I would throw that in there. Now I knew him from a different role, okay, from, from Saved by the Bell, The Next Generation. Oh, for <laughs> Did real? He Zach Did he Morris? play Zach Morris? No, he played he played the cool hip professor who oh, was. Oh my god, I remember that now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm yeah. gonna watch that. Oh, oh my yeah. god. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When I said when I said the next generation, I meant the college years. Yeah, the college years. Uh, I, 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 I knew what you meant. You know, you know exactly I got what. you, Mark. Which is absurd <laughs> because there is no bell in college, right? What college did you go to, man? How do they know when class is over? They went to the Bellless College. Jeez. <laughs> the Nobel College. It was really quick. That whole thing with Howard, the way that it played out, it's it's so reminiscent of Hank. And and Chuck hmm. and eventually Gus that when he got it all right when when he went back to his office and he's like I I know that they they found some way to dilate my pupils and all that and like he, right. he got all of it and it's the same with when when Hank discovered Walt and he's he's putting all these pieces together and you're like shit okay somebody's gonna get it and all of them they they it never got to that point. Oh, well, yeah. Well, what do they all have in common? We're about to find out. So let's see here. Because don't spoil it for the people who haven't seen the show yet and are listening to this. Stop listening. <laughs> I'm just joking. Just joking. Just trying to get a rise out of you. You know, shits and giggles. Anyway. <clears throat> on to Gus. Because this, this Gus showdown, holy fucking shit, this was a showdown, man. So Gus has created an underground tunnel that leads from his house to his neighbor's house, which has all sorts of funky security going on, right? This is to protect himself from Lalo, who everyone else believes is dead. But Gus is too smart to fall for that. Lalo is, in fact, in Germany and has tracked down Werner Ziegler's widow, who is an unknown... Right way. What? Werner right Ziegler. Can you say it? Hey, wait, 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 Matt, Matt, let's work together. He has tracked down Werner Ziegler's mm-hmm. widow, who is an unknowing informant and leads Lalo to one of the construction people who worked on the underground meth lab. After a physical altercation, which resulted in, of course, Lalo's victory, 
He got the worker to talk, and Lalo now knows exactly where the meth lab is and how to find Gus. I'm glad he didn't kill the widow of Matt. You yeah. I didn't think that the widow was going to die. I, I, I just kind of had a feeling like, even though she seemed like she was in imminent danger, it's just another one of those things where the lead up, like this, this can't possibly result in her being dead. Mm-hmm. I also thought for a second he was going to strip her first. And I'm glad he didn't do that because that would have been really like, <laughs> that would have been very disrespectful. Yeah, but I did find the like the layout of her house to be interesting. All the other houses were front facing. Her house was like side facing. I was like, that's kind of cool. And he like hopped the fence to get in and all that stuff. So Howard shows up at Saul and Kim's house to confront them on their scam. He says things like, "I can't prove it." And I know you have to act like you don't know what I'm talking about, but I know that you were behind what happened. Then what happens? Lalo shows up and shoots him in the head. Now Howard is dead. I, I didn't know what the payoff was going to be. And I, I thought it was, it was interesting when he walked in and obviously Jimmy thinks he's seeing a ghost. And he, he said, how? And I was like, are you... Are you saying, how is he alive? Or are you about to tell Howard to leave? Like just that one syllable. And it's like, mm. there's, there's a couple different ways it can go. Right. And very quick, uh, you, you thought Howard was going to get out too. The way that uh, Lala was like, you know what? I'm not here for you. Don't, don't worry about it. Take your time. Right. You know, they were like, Howard, you need to go. You need to get out of here. It, it kind of brought me back to that like first season episode where like, Saul hates the, those two punk kids, but he doesn't want to see them get killed. Same idea, but they were both like, you need to get out. We hate you, but we don't want you to get killed. And uh, that didn't last for very long. He shot him. And that was that. He goes, okay, let's talk. And I guess it really wasn't until later in the, uh, the series, in the season, that... I, I, I didn't really understand why Howard needed to be shot and killed. It didn't really seem to have any relevance to the plot. Well, yeah. it, it did lead to, to Kim's uh, departure. Right. That's yeah. why I said later on it pays off. But in the moment, it didn't seem to make any sense at all that that was written into the script. Well, Lalo's a psychopath. You know? So, yeah, right. I, I, um, I suppose... Yeah, I actually thought Lalo's so convincing that mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, he, he has no reason to shoot Howard. <laughs> but, he, but of course, like, he right. did anyway. I mean, one can say, well, it's like a witness because everybody knows that Lalo is a Sol- 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 Salamanca and Salamanca. Uh, um, he's like wanted. So he could have. But I feel like if it was just their like old lady neighbor, he probably would have shot her, too. I don't know. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he's crazy. Right, but well, yeah, he, but Howard is a he would he's a lawyer and he is a, obviously I don't know if he would have known who that is, but I'm sure he, you know, he would have asked, started asking questions. True. So he was a liability. Yeah, and like you know, Lara, to your point where he was saying, you know, you said he's a psycho. I don't think that needs to be driven any more than it's already been, which is another reason why I was like, okay, we get it. He's crazy. He's killing. He's shooting the guy in the head. Okay, fine. I, I guess it sort of makes sense, but anyway, season break. Now, I had the pleasure of having most of the episodes ready to go, so I didn't have to 
wait for the season break to end. You bastard. I just went right on to the next one. And it was glorious. Lovely. So, we pick up the season in the same uh, same house. Guys, freshly dead on the floor, dripping blood all over the place. Very interesting looking angles and points of view. Lalo then tells Saul to go kill Gus at his house while Kim stays behind. Of course, Saul offers to let Kim go and he can stay behind in her place. However, as we find out later, Lalo knew no one would be killing Gus. He used the entire thing as a distraction so he could sneak into the meth lab and kill Gus while Mike and his goons go back to Saul and Kim's house to stop Lalo because they thought he would be there. Gus finds out about Lalo heading to the meth lab and goes in after him. Of course, Lalo knew this would happen and shoots Gus in the bulletproof vest. Why are people shooting each other in bulletproof vests? Why not just shoot them in the head? It's how we're trained. Ah. Well, you send a mess when you shoot someone in the bulletproof vest, you send a message. When That's you shoot true. Them in the head, the message is not received. But he was planning on killing him immediately after that, which is why I didn't quite understand it. You know, it was it was like, okay, you're shooting him so that he'll show you the thing downstairs and you say, I have a bathtub that does that or whatever. But anyway, Gus says he has a few last words which Lalo gleefully allows. However, as so many things on Saul are, this was just a distraction. So he could kick out the power and roll over to his hidden gun in the pitch black. And after some shooting in the dark, Gus emerges triumphant and watches as Lalo bleeds to death, his mouth filled with blood and the creepiest smile I have ever seen on TV. The thing that confused me initially was when Gus was on the phone with Kim and she's explaining, he said, well, Lalo let you go. Like, what, what, what happens? You know, Jimmy talked him out of it. And the way my brain was trying to compute this entire season, jumping forward is, okay, how does this happen in Breaking Bad? Who's here? Who's there? And whatever. I thought that that was a way that, like, this guy has a way with words. I want to work with him as mm -hmm. a sort of in into working with Gus. And that was never it anyway. He, he knew that it was a ploy. And they were they were both bouncing that back and forth, you know, that Lalo had had his way of of screwing with people and, and getting his way in. And, and Gus, you know, suspected it. It's kind of a lot to digest that Gus would plant this gun in the laundromat, knowing that it would come down to this um, and be in a position to, to use it. But I guess that's Gus for you. But, you know, on, on the shooting him in the bulletproof vest point, it, it's important for Lalo to show that Gus was going against the cartel. I yeah. guess he could have done that with, with Gus already dead. He could have shown that this is being under construction. But I think he, the, the videotape confession was Lalo's idea, right? Because he wanted he wanted to show that Gus was moving against the cartel. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of strands in this whole plot at this point. Um, yeah, it really plays into um, just Gus's narcissism, not Gus's, I'm sorry, Lalo's narcissism. Um, I mean, he had he had so much time and Gus should have been dead by now. Like he had the upper hand, he had the gun, he he had so many chances to kill him. And, you know, he goes, are you done? And, Gus, you know, he's like, he just he wants no. to get it on tape. He wants to film it. He wants to he wants him, you know, he wants to, like, draw it out. Um, he got a little too cocky, and then you know, gosh, he didn't know he had, Gus had a gun. It, 
there's no, you know, so he, he should have been dead like 20 minutes ago, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Basilal is just not smart in that, that sense. But, you know, you needed the dramatics. Otherwise, it, won't be a sh- it wouldn't be a show. Right. I love that, you know, like, like what you're saying, you know, Lalo was so amused by what Gus was saying. He was mm. saying, like, wh- whatever words he was using exactly is like, oh, you're a piece of shit, asshole, blah, blah, blah. And Lala was just like, yeah, like yeah, he was entertained by it. It was kind of a similar along the lines as you know what um Nacho's you know yeah. monologue is like. I hate all you Salamancas. Like, <laughs> can't stand you. Unfortunately, Nacho died after that, even if it was by his own hand. That is true. Yes, it was subtle, but I did notice that earlier in the season they showed that Gus had planted that gun. And they showed it for like a couple of seconds, and like you know, they, they did. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. And they and they showed it. They showed uh, Gus was kind of like you know playing around with the with the cable that he kicked out. He knew what he was doing. It wasn't just a coincidence that that stuff was all there. He and they showed him do it. They were like really setting up, you know, Lalo's uh, Lalo's murder, like episodes in advance. Ooh, I found to be kind of kind of interesting. It's, it's a little bit far-fetched though, because like Lalo found out about the laundromat by going to Germany and like mm-hmm. chopping the foot off of like one of the consumers. So like Gus knew all that was going to happen, I guess. Well, he didn't necessarily know that that was going to happen specifically, but he figured if, you know, if anyone ever did find out about it, then he'd be in trouble and he needs to protect himself. What I kind of don't understand though, is that after the construction was done, and Lalo finds the construction worker, they weren't supposed to know where they were. How did he know where it was? That's a little bit of an inconsistency that I don't that I don't quite understand. But you gotta suspend your disbelief to some degree. We're getting back to Saul and Kim. And Kim finally becomes completely overwhelmed by the recent events and calls it. They can no longer be together because they are bad for each other. Some time goes by. And we find Saul now living in a redonk mansion and going to work in his all too recognizable office, having now, like the transformation from Anakin to Darth, made the full transition to sleazy meth lawyer, even signing the divorce papers that Kim serves him during the Breaking Bad timeline does not appear to phase him. This is the end of the Better Call Saul timeline sadly that was the only thing i guessed right was that once murder got involved you know once murder was involved that that was just going to be too much for kim and she was just going to bounce and you know obviously that pushes jimmy into or saul into full-blown saul that we're familiar with as just like the painful breakup coping mechanism like you didn't want me to be this well fuck you i'm gonna be this Mm -hmm. In the hopes that, like, does he hope that she comes back, or is it just a spite play? If you know she came back, would he drop it? Is it still all about money? Like, you don't know where that was going to go. I think we all hope beyond hope that just because we liked it, that she was going to come back and sort of, you know, rectify it all. Well, I think that, I mean, Saul obviously, as has been established over twelve seasons of two shows, or ten rather seasons of two shows, is a very smart person. And he reads people. He knows what people are going to do. And he knew that Kim was not going to change her mind. 
So he kind of started acting the way that he did because that way he can have the upper hand as much as he can. Uh, I don't think he wanted it to be that way, but he kind of said, all right, well, as long as I can't change anything here, I might as well act like I don't give a shit. Yeah, there was a, de- a degree of comfort there from, sorry, for out of both of them where, you know, they they did their little cons and there was no real legit consequences for, for anything that they had done up to that point. You know, they, they right. scammed Dan Wins or whatever the hell his name was with the, with the fake investment and all that. It's like the compared to you know comparatively it was pretty harmless, right? And and even he's like, oh, you don't want to do this, you 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 know stay, you we don't have to do this. Well, it's already it already reached the breaking point. It's it's been done, yeah. That's yeah. A- right. And I, if I can add to that, just um how I said earlier, um how I mean I agree with Dan, Dan Seymour, um about how Saul Saul Goodman, you know he's whether he was always meant to be him, he always had that inside of him, um. You know, in Saul's defense, he did try, you know, when Kim had her interview and he, he's telling her, you know, the guy's in a, the judge, he, the judge lookalike, he's in a cast, like, you know, let's just forget about it. Um, you know, Kim's like, no, we have to do this. So I, when, when Kim says, says to Saul, we're bad for each other. Um, I don't think that's true. I think Saul's bad for her. She, he brings out her inner kind of mischievous self because you see the flashback when she was a child and she steals like she has that in her as well not to Saul's level but and Saul and Kim brings him back to earth I think Kim is good for him but Saul's bad for her that's what I think and then when she leaves that's why he has no reason left to be Jimmy he's full-on Saul he doesn't need he doesn't have Chuck to impress he doesn't have Kim him to you know it's kind of like his his conscience you know so I actually think Jimmy's bad for her she was right in leaving it's just too much for her but in his defense it's not it's her too she she wanted she she went along with that she was enjoying that she was having fun doing you messing with Howard but then it went too far I can't disagree with that at all that's I I was kind of feeling the same way when she said we're bad for each other I've, you know, like before she met him and even when she was with him, she in the beginning strongly disapproved of the stuff that he did, eventually learning to accept it and saying, hey, you know what, this is kind of fun. And then she realized that she was not like she needs to not do that anymore. Exactly. Uh, Doesn't she say she she says we're bad for each other and we're bad for the world. Right. Does she say the world? Yeah. I think so. Well, a man died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it probably it probably wasn't fun for her anymore as of that moment. But, you know, <laughs> she, she was sacrificing the fun that she had with him for the good of the world. You know, I, I think probably um, there are a lot of reasons why she left. But the, but yeah. the way, she, the way she, she portrayed it was that she was making the sacrifice dis- right. despite having fun with him. Yeah, and I think uh, perhaps that moment where, where Howard... Uh, right before Howard's death, he calls her out on that. He says something to the extent of like, you know, what, what's going on with you? You were such a bright, reasonable person, but I figured it out. You know, you're not angry at me. You just, you just get off on this. That might've been a moment of realization for her. Cause that's why she turns around, right? She, she's on her way to a meaningful job that she wants, but that's less fun than whatever they've got cooking up. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's really all her choices. If if anything, if she didn't turn around, Jamie wouldn't know went through with the plan and how it might still be alive and they might still be together. I mean, I hope it, it's not too obvious to make the the murder the tipping point. But when when she did say that they're bad for each other, Jimmy Jimmy brought her into a certain world that she had no business in, that no good could come of, and their affiliation with Howard brought him into the same world which ultimately led to his demise and that's a consequence that they you know you don't feel they, they haven't seen that from you know getting the rush from stealing a pair of earrings or conning right. somebody for a pair of earrings which is you know relatively benign when you when you compare it to you know an innocent man getting killed right which neither one of them knew that was going to happen obviously uh the layout of the prequel sort of reminds me of the layout of How I Met Your Mother, where it's sort of like the first at least half of the series kind of doesn't even talk about how he starts becoming Saul. He, he becomes Saul at the end of the fourth season. So really, the story starts with the beginning of the fourth season, and things get more and more and more insane, and of course, as we know in Breaking Bad, Saul stays, you know, a lawyer. I mean, he's like a criminal lawyer. As Jesse Pinkman says, you need a criminal lawyer. And that's what he is. He's a criminal lawyer. He became that after Chuck died. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. There were certain things that I thought I, I wanted or, or that I thought I needed to see. Like once once Francesco was decorating his office and he went, well, all right, where where does the complete overhaul come from to to gimmicky, you know, justice advocate and the, the the columns and the constitution and all that? And we didn't need that. Like we we get it, you know, this guy's off the rails and and the, the transformation, we know how it happens. We didn't need to see all, all the, the nitpicky stuff. So I hope to touch on this, uh, Gus and his lack of relationships, specifically with the bartender who he flirts with. After Gus defeats Lalo and goes out to celebrate and has a drink and flirts with that guy, and then things seem to be going fine, and then he just gets up and leaves. And I think about like why he did that. So Gus is like, there's nothing good about Gus at all. But he saves that guy's life, right? He says, well, if I get involved in this guy, he's probably just gonna end up getting killed and whatever. So rather than pulling him in and probably leading to his death, I'll, I'll save his life. And so I'm not saying that that means that there's good and bad to Gus, but it does mean that it, it's, there's some uh, ambiguities. I think one of the most important moments, uh, in a way, looking back on the whole series, was with uh, Nacho's father. Mm. And if that last time we seen Nacho's father, I, I think Mike says to him something like, "You know, your your son was was a good boy. He he died. I forget the exact line. He died doing the right things for the right reasons." And almost like this avatar for the audience that ever shows up, Nacho's father says, "Are you fucking kidding me?" you're all criminals. Yeah. Everything that you think is so relative because you're all dirty. And that's almost like a breath of fresh air for the audience because we get to, oh, well, I don't know. He's kind of good. He's kind of bad. Well, this kingpin is like, loves his kids and all this stuff. But in reality, someone's got to say it. But I mean, clearly Mike, in, in the spectrum of criminality, <laughs> Mike is a better person than Gus, right? Saul is a better person than Heisenberg. I think right, so it's like I kind of, I kind of, I kind of disagree with Nacho's father on that one. Like 
if you know if you got to go with someone, you go with Mike. <laughs> <laughs> he basically Nacho's father just basically summed it up. It, it, the point is, it doesn't. Um, I think Mike said, but don't worry. You know, he died bravely. It was fast. Um, but don't worry. We'll have our vengeance. And Nacho's father is basically like, I don't give a shit about that. My son is gone. What's the difference? You're all criminals. If he, if my son didn't enter into this life, whether he was the better of the criminals, he's still a criminal. He would still be alive. You know, he and his son is gone. His young, very young man. You know, obviously seems like a pretty smart guy, but got in, got in with the wrong people. But yeah, so that that really like you know, said a lot. The doctor's father was like, I don't care if you get your vengeance. That's not going to bring my son back. He's gone. But I, I think that th this point, though, is it, it kind of contradicts the, what I believe the theme of both shows is. And since we haven't gotten to the Better Call Saul finale, I'll just talk about the Breaking Bad finale, where, like, Heisenberg's a bad person. Like, it's too late for him not to be a bad person. But... With what time he has remaining, he can do something good, and he, and he does, and that's like a beautiful way to end the show. So I, I think that kind of contradicts the idea that all criminals are, are just criminals, and there's no difference between Heisenberg staying in New Hampshire and Heisenberg coming back and like saving Penguin and killing the Nazis, right? Like those are not the same thing. One is better than the other. Well, Cosmo Kramer, it's all levels. It's all levels. Yeah, certainly. So that happens, and so I didn't realize it, but yeah, he accidentally let it slip that he used to live in Albuquerque like her son, so she got a little suspicious. I don't know what beyond that made her suspicious. Well, there, were a couple he, of, there were a couple of little things. Yeah, but she said that she looked up Albuquerque and Scam, and up you popped, and uh, what I thought was kind of cool... That whole, that whole thing takes place in black and white. He looks at the laptop and it reflects in his glasses in color. Well, that was the only thing to that point that had been in color was from the first episode when he was watching his own commercials in, this, in the series premiere. Was that also in color in the very beginning? Yeah, I think it reflected in his glasses the same way. That's kind of cool. Anyway, so we're just going to go to that point where she realizes that he is a con artist, ultimately... He appears like he's going to be violent with her and says, you know, you're not going to call the police. But then he realizes that he's not the kind of person who will get violent with an old lady and he lets her call the police and he just leaves. Of course, he gets caught very shortly after that in a dumpster and uh, they try to throw down the hammer in the, uh, the negotiation room. Saul plays victim, which results in them offering him seven years in prison after seeing Kim. Saul decides to come clean and take all the blame in order to protect Kim. He gets 86 years in prison, but the thing is... Clearly a reference to get smart. Ah, nice. Yes, 86. Maxwell smart. 86 years in prison, but he's treated like a king on the inside. You know, so it's almost like a resort where everyone does things for him because they're all like, better, call, Saul, better. And like that, that whole thing in the bus, and they're like, it's like pipe down. Okay, so it's not all that bad. Kim visits him and they appear to reunite. But what can he do from prison over the next 86 years? And that's how the series ends. It was satisfying. You know, earlier we had talked about how the death of Nacho looked like it was going to go one way. And it was sort of defied that trope. And I think they did that again in a very powerful way 
by somehow not you know, what what uh, what what Saul got out of it was he got himself a big sentence and he got to show him in person uh, this coming to uh, coming to a reckoning with what had happened. But it really seemed like had they been following the standard tropes, he would have somehow also exonerated Kim mm-hmm. and made it so that Kim is somehow shielded from from the civil lawsuits that Howard's widow is presumably going to uh, pursue. And they, they defied convention by not having him do that. He tried to get redemption with Kim, but only through, through the more spiritually meaningful, but not practically meaningful way. I mean, I agree with you at that point. It almost seems like that was the only way that he could reunite with Kim in some way. Obviously they were not going to go, and get together romantically again and do more scams together and all that stuff. But he did the right thing. Kim went back for one last cigarette with him. She's actually still not practicing law, but her law card worked to get her in. It didn't have an expiration date on it, you see. Well, real quick about the last cigarette. The cherry on the cigarette is also in color. So that's the only other thing in that world, which is in color. It's hard to pick up on. It's like the Schindler list of television. Yeah, right? The, the thing I liked and the problem I had with the series from the beginning is it hinging off of Breaking Bad just because of could they possibly create something that broke off that show? And I mean, they did. And I felt that the first few seasons, maybe the first three or four of, of Saul were very slow to me. I, I don't know what sort of justification I wanted in the beginning, but the thing that it had working for it and I mean, it kept me in is that it's called Better Call Saul and you, you want to see Jimmy's whole story and all that and, and how it becomes what he is in Breaking Bad. But it's setting up everything from the first time you see Tuco and Mike and eventually when Gus pops up and they decide to build the lab, and you're like, shit, they're doing all of it. Like we're, we're going to, it's all going to pay off. And I, I couldn't stop just to like to have those questions answered. So like, yeah, all right, fine. You know, I'll, I, now I have to stick around just to see all of it. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was beautiful. I mean, the, the redemption is too strong a word probably, but like, you know, partial redemption of the character. And, our, you know, our, our father was complaining about how unrealistic it was that this person would voluntarily accept, you know, 80, 80 additional years on, on a sentence. And yeah, okay, it's not a true story, right? It's like a fable. And I think as the viewer, like we we deserve that. We deserve that good feeling that we get when he does that and, and partially redeems himself. So I love the very end um, very much. Yeah, I I did. I did like the way it ended. Um, I loved how he just, you know, before he confessed everything and got Kim off the hook and got the 80 years that they were going to settle and he would only got what, what was it? I think seven years, seven years. It was yeah. just amazing. I like unheard of, but it just shows that, it, okay, he's, he's a, he's a very conniving, very convincing, great lawyer. Like if he stayed on the way Chuck did, he could have been a legitimate, really good lawyer, but he always had this Saul Goodman in him, this, you know, kind of criminal mind. And I also like real fast, Um, I don't know if it was in the final episode or the second to last episode when they did those flashbacks of him first him and mike in the desert that was that was the final episode 
that was. Okay, they were taking a break and they're they're talking about money. What would you? What would I'm not the money. If you had a time machine, what would you do? I would. Mike's go. Mike says I will go back and wouldn't wouldn't accept my first bribe. Saul goes. What what would he said? He was like I would go back and whatever invest in this stack, Apple or whatever it was, and be a millionaire. Um, it's like, really? That's it? Just money? And then they do another flash flashback of him and Walter. And same question with the time machine. I forget what Walter says. But Walter's like a, like very difficult about the question. Well, Walter, Walter's regret is the gray matter. Right. That Exactly. The gray matter, which is kind of also related to money, but also credit. And I think Saul says, again, something stupid like money. And Walter goes, have you always, I guess you, have you always been like, like this? So it kind of just... shows you that yes he kind of always had that mindset but what I love about the very end yes he's he's almost about to just get only seven years which is like no other lawyer would have gotten him that he lawyered himself but then Kim is his humanizes him is is like you know brings him back to Jimmy McGill and he does the right thing because of her his love for her so I love the way it ended I think it was great I think the weird thing is that no matter which way it went it, it would have it would have justified the whole thing like because when all the investigators the lawyers are sitting down with him and he he negotiated his way down to seven years and you're like this son of a bitch like yeah. he earned that he, he earned getting off mm-hmm. sure. and that would i think that would have been okay but for that to have been the only sort of i mean outside of the few that died i guess the only real punishment that came from the the Breaking Bad universe was an interesting way to go and for him to, to, you know, ultimately own up to it. Dan, what you were saying about our father complaining about how unrealistic um, it is that he would confess what he confessed, get an extra, whatever, 79 years on his sentence and all that stuff. I think that it was necessary because him going to prison for the rest of his life was basically just, you're putting a pin in it and you are officially ending the Breaking Bad universe by doing that. Because if Saul had been out there again, then the Breaking Bad universe would not have been complete. So I think that in addition to him, you know, getting the redemption and like the audience deserves to have that good feeling inside, oh, Saul redeemed himself and blah, blah, blah. Now, officially, no one who was conniving or dangerous exists in the outside world anymore in the Breaking Bad universe, and that's that. And that, I thought, was a very, I'm sure that was some thought that was put into it. You know, Vince Gilligan probably said, we need to close the universe altogether so that there is no possible uh, possibility for another spinoff show. And that's, that's that. Bad business. You know, you do what you gotta do. I don't think I would watch a spinoff of Better Call Saul, like the Kim Wexler show. I think the only one that's been mentioned would have been Gus. I would not watch a Gus prequel where he's like now like what, 70 years old acting like he's 30. I, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. So I think it was I think it was a good idea. I, I think they ended it the right way, because personally, I hated the end of El Camino. It, it was I don't know what I wanted out of it, but it wasn't enough to just say like, OK, it's two days later. And well, this one got away. That doesn't tell us really anything. And. I don't know how much more I needed or what I expected out of it. But like, that's that's it. I thought that a lot of El Camino was really dumb. And I felt like they just basically they made a Breaking Bad movie to show you how Jesse's story would end. And a lot of what led up to it was so like 
am I really expected to believe this? When Todd brought Jesse out to the middle of nowhere, Jesse had his gun, and I'm expected to believe that Todd would convince him not to pull the trigger. It doesn't make sense to me, especially because very shortly after that, he strangled Todd with his handcuffs. I got it. Yeah? Entire prequel following the life of the vacuum cleaner guy. Well, why not have a prequel about, you know, Walter's son? When? Or Holly. Have a prequel or, or, or a sequel series about Holly. Did you hear that the actor who plays the vacuum cleaner guy uh, was apparently ripping off Paul Newman's daughters? We'll do a podcast on that. Yeah. Mark, I believe congratulations are in order because you have now been the only guest who has been on the show with only Greg, with only me, and with both of us at the same time. We move on to plugs. Matt, where can we find you? Uh, I'm in my apartment right now. My source of local fame, as it were, uh, comes from where we met, the Decay and Decadence uh, rock and metal collaboration, which uh, there's one coming up in November. Giant amalgam of, of local musicians playing, you know, the heavy metal and rock songs that everybody knows. It's a great time. And that, that's what I have on the horizon, aside from the new Metallica tribute band that I'm part of. Uh, dates to be announced. It's true. Matt Marks are... Matt is one of the most talented musicians I've ever had the pleasure to work with. I have played bass when he was on drums. I have played drums when he was on guitar. I have played guitar when he was on guitar. There is just nothing that this guy can't do. So I would go to see Matt's Metallica tribute band, Dates to be Announced. Mark, we're going to go to your plugs. You go on to Etsy. And you type in hat on a hat on a hat, and then you buy them. It sounds like he's making that up, but that, that's real. That's a real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, we have trucker hats coming out real soon. So by the time this airs, maybe there'll be some trucker hats on there. They're the rage nowadays. The kids love them. Lara, where can they find our band? Uh, yeah, you can find us uh, at medteapartyband.com. Also on social media, medteapartybandny. Uh, it's on Facebook and Mad Tea Party Band on Instagram. So, guys, I appreciate you being on the episode. This was a lot of fun. This has been delightful. Yes. yes. This is great. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to our Better Call Saul podcast. Remember to follow us at MSV Podcast One on Twitter for announcements on any new episodes coming up. And while you're there, follow us at Other Podcast One. Thank you. Next time on the show, join me and Keith Bliss handing in our homework late for the SNL Movie Roundtable as we review Blues Brothers 2000 and MacGruber. So I'll see you all then. Thanks for listening and good night, everyone. Communication
Stepping off the grid just to let me know Too many got my time 